that said, check out the e-bulletin. A lot more information that is there uh, on the website, calvarychapelgreeley.org, or on the app. And uh, check it out for other things that are going to be a benefit to you. This morning, we're going to continue in our Nehemiah study. So chapter 5 of the book of Nehemiah. Looking at this, so much um, response of um, many of you being blessed at looking at the godly example of this man, Nehemiah. We've covered the first four chapters. We're going to go into chapter 5, verse 1. Nehemiah, the Old Testament. The end of the historical books. So you have Ezra, Nehemiah, and then you have Esther. Fifth chapter. Okay. Father, this morning as we come to you, we have a few moments in your word. So I pray um, there is an honoring of your word, a reverence of your word. That you honor your word above your name, David wrote in the Psalms. So I pray that we would be um, attentive, that we would be free from distractions. Remember to turn our ringers off our phones, be settled in our seat, because we get bombarded with the world all week long. We want to hear from you now. And Lord, these things that we're looking at, not only looking at the implication, but make an application for our day today. Help us be people that are teachable. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. So as we travel through the first four chapters of Nehemiah, of course, Nehemiah, who was the cupbearer to the king Artaxerxes in 445 B.C. It's about 140 years, 50 years after the destruction of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. It would be about 90 years after the 70 years of captivity are over. So the people were coming back, and they came back in about 536 B.C. Initially, about 50,000 under the leadership of Zerubbabel and Joshua the high priest. And as you read, they would rebuild the temple, but the walls around Jerusalem remained down, and the stones uh, uh, were spread out all over the place and burnt, and the gates were uh, down as well. And so the people were in distress. Nehemiah, who had never been to Jerusalem, as he's the cupbearer to the king, he hears from his brother, hey, the people are in fear, they're in distress, the walls are still down. So Nehemiah grieved and he wept and he prayed to the Lord. And in chapter 2 of the book of Nehemiah, he asked permission uh, from the king, can I go back and rebuild the walls and the streets around Jerusalem? He was granted that permission, and as he surveyed the city, he would say to the people, let us rise up and and do this work, this good work of rebuilding the wall around Jerusalem so we're no longer a reproach to our enemies. And the people would say that, yes, let us set our hands and our minds to do this good work. And I want to remind you that whenever the Lord is working in your life and in the life of your family and in this church family, that it's a good work. But we also know that in the world in which we're living in, that there's spiritual battle that takes place. And as we have discussed in details, as they're building the wall around the holy city of Jerusalem, chapter 4, as we left off in that chapter, that they had built the wall, the wall was connecting together halfway to its height, that we have seen that the enemy is coming against the work that God is doing. And, And it's true today. Whenever he's working, and he is working in your life, will you remember that? Because sometimes we think, Lord, are you working? I'm desiring to live for you. I'm desiring to please you with my life. 
He doesn't slumber. He doesn't sleep. But the enemy will come against that work that God is doing. And in chapter 4, we see that. The attacks that came from the outside, the external, those outside forces, Sambalot and Tobiah and the Syrian army and the Ammonites. And we saw the tactics of the enemy coming against them in that work over the last couple of weeks. The same tactics that our enemy, Satan, uses against us. You see, he'll use mocking and threats and discouragement and fear, all those things that we discussed and looked at in detail in chapter 4. The enemy, Satan, has a lot of arrows in his quiver that he likes to throw at us, the fiery darts. And remember that as the Apostle Paul would write in Ephesians chapter 6, that in the spiritual warfare and battle that we are in, that we're to put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. So we're told not to be ignorant of Satan's devices. And as we move into now this chapter of Nehemiah, we see that the enemy is not attacking from the outside, but uh, he is doing that. But also he's attacking from within and he does the same thing today. In other words, he'll try to get a foothold into your family between a husband and a wife, between parents and children. He'll try to get a foothold into this church, attacking within. We see in the New Testament, when Paul was writing those corrective letters to the churches there in the first century, the Christians were experiencing persecution from the outside under Rome, but also from within, as uh, they say that when Satan can't defeat the church uh, from persecution, he'll join the church. And he'll bring in false teaching and doctrine and division and and confusion. Well, he's doing the same thing today, the accuser of the brethren. He tries to get uh, a foothold into our homes, into our lives, into this church family, bring in turmoil and confusion and selfishness and self-centeredness. And he's very effective at doing that. And that's what we're going to see in this chapter. So let's begin to read as in chapter 5, verse 1 of the book of Nehemiah. And there was a great outcry of the people and their wives against their Jewish brethren. Uh, we go from a great God, chapter 1, verse 5, comes a call for a great work, chapter 4, verse 19. And now chapter 5, verse 1, there's a great cry. In the midst of the work, they were not crying about uh, concerning Sambalot and Tobiah, and the Samaritans, and the Ammonites that were threatening them, trying to intimidate, bring fear, uh, trying to stop the, the work of the Lord. But here, they were crying out against their own brethren. And why would they be doing that? Why is it mentioned that the people and their wives were crying out concerning that which was going on? I think that it shows us and it emphasizes to us the severity of the situation. It speaks about how bad the strife was and it threatened the, uh, the continuing of the work of God because they are no longer unified. They are no longer fighting the real enemy. Remember that Paul, as he's writing about spiritual warfare in Ephesians chapter 6, that he says, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and against the darkness of the rulers of this age. And why was there an outcry? Why is this strife taking place? Well, let's read in verse 2 that we read, For there were those who said, uh, We are sons and our daughters are many. 
Therefore, let us get grain that we may eat and live. There were also some who said, We have mortgaged our lands and vineyards and houses that we might buy grain because of the famine. There were also those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our lands and vineyards. And in verse 5, Yet now our flesh is as the flesh of our brethren, our children as their children. And indeed, we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have been brought into slavery. It is not in our power to redeem them, for other men have our lands and our vineyards. So the reason for the outcry among some of the brethren against other brethren there in Jerusalem. Number 1, verse 2. There were the people that had owned no land. Uh, They lacked food. The population had increased since they came back some 140 years before this time here. And, you know, as it says here that we are many here, uh, they were hungry. Keep in mind that before the captivity, that most, uh, a lot of the people owned land and they grew crops. It was a land flowing with milk and honey. And they would be able to provide food for the people that were in Jerusalem and the other cities. They had livestock. Here at this time, there's no King Supers, okay? There's no safe way for them to go to. And so there was a great shortage of food, and they were hungry. Second of all, verse 3, it tells us that those who did have land had to mortgage their property in order to buy food. People had no money. Inflation was very high, which means food prices were very high. And then the third complaint came from those who couldn't pay their taxes, So they had to borrow money, and they had to give security, and some of them were losing their property. And then the fourth problem that was taking place, as we read in verse 5 there, is that the wealthier Jews were exploiting their own brothers and sisters who could not pay back their loans. And so not only were they losing their lands, but their sons and their daughters had to make a choice whether they would starve or whether they would be put under slavery. So some pretty serious and grievous things were taking place among the brethren. Now, it was not unlawful to lend money or to give a loan. But the law of God was very clear, giving guidelines. They were not to charge interest, Deuteronomy chapter 23. And then you had like the year of Jubilee, Leviticus chapter 25. That's when all the debt had to be forgiven. The land had to be restored to its original owners, and servants were to be set free, slaves. Inheritance in ancient Israel was very, very important. So those who were wealthy, and this Bible, is this chapter that is, that we're reading in the Bible, is not teaching us that being wealthy is a sin, because the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible does teach that the love of money is the cause of all kinds of evil. And we know that there are those in the scripture like Abraham that was wealthy that was a friend of God. We know that David, who had a heart after God, was wealthy. Solomon had the wisdom of God, who wore golden sandals. Joseph of Arimathea, who would hoon out a tomb out of the rock for Jesus to be put into. He was a wealthy man. These were all men of God that had a heart for God. So it's not a sin to be wealthy, but... At this time, in this case, the wealthy were, again, taking advantage of the poor for their own benefit to become wealthier, even at the expense of putting people in slavery and into bondage and taking their lands. And keep in mind that before the captivity, as you read the Old Testament, the historical books, particularly of 1 Kings 
in 2 Kings, as you read 2 Chronicles, as you read the books of the prophets, as the prophets came to them, before they went into captivity, of course, there was idol worship. They were being told to turn away from that idol worship. And because of idol worship and worshiping those false gods, there was all kinds of ungodly practices that were going on. And you see that in the house of Israel, the ten northern tribes, and the house of Judah, that the same things were taking place. There was injustice. There was uh, violence. There was uh, taking advantage of people. Habakkuk speaks of that uh, there in about four years before the Judah went into captivity. Remember chapter 1, that little book we studied uh, just a few months ago? That he's saying, Lord, don't you see what's happening? All the injustice, the violence, the ripping people off, the, the uh, judges are corrupt, all these things. And don't you see, and what are you going to do about it, Lord? And the Lord said, I am going to do, I do see, and this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to allow the Chaldeans to come in and take Judah away captive. And, of course, uh, chapter 2 we see as uh, he was really wrestling with that. Uh, And then he's watching, and then he ends up, as the Lord's ministering to him his truth, ends up worshiping. We see it with the other uh, prophets. Ezekiel speaks of it. Uh, Hosea speaks of what was happening there in the land before the captivity. Uh, Amos, Micah speaks specifically what was happening in Jerusalem there as they were ripping the people off. Violence, taking advantage of people. So as they were doing it at this time here, and people, those who, who had you know, uh, the wealth, they, they were plotting how they could take advantage of their brethren. And the prophets denounced it before the captivity. And here it's coming up again. And it was threatening what God wanted to do to, in Jerusalem with God's people back into the land and their future. So we continue reading in verse 6. As Nehemiah writes, And I became very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. So Nehemiah's reaction to this was, he was angry. He was very angry, we read. And it was a righteous anger. Because some of the Jewish leaders were exploiting the situation at the expense of the harm of their brethren. He was angry, and there's no mention of the work of God continuing. So they could stand strong against the outside enemy, building a wall to protect them. And now that work is being hindered because of the internal problems here. Now, a couple thoughts here. Jesus had a righteous anger. It wasn't sin. He was angry in Mark chapter 3, verse 5. He goes into the synagogue there in Capernaum. The religious leaders had been confronting Jesus, being contentious about the Sabbath day. And they wanted to see, they wanted to watch and find reason to accuse him if he was going to heal on the Sabbath day. So as Jesus came into the synagogue, there's a man in the back with a withered hand. So they're watching Jesus, trying to find a reason to accuse him. Jesus knew what they were up to. And it says there in Mark chapter 3, verse 5, that he looked at those religious leaders with anger. It was a righteous anger, and the reason that he was angry, because those religious leaders didn't care about the people. They didn't care about the man with the withered hand. They put burdens on people and and, uh, heavy burdens to them and uh, were only concerned about themselves and their status. So we see things around this that are going on in the world around us. We see and we see what's going on in the world, in our nation, in our community, the abuse, the, the murder, the injustice, the, the innocent. 
When we read about how somebody innocent is killed or hurt, we get angry about it. We get angry at the direction of our nation is going, the immorality, the, uh, the depravity, all these things. Of course that we look at it, and, and we can get angry. But listen, this is important. If we let our anger continue, we need to be careful that it doesn't lead us to sinning. And that's why Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26, Be angry and don't sin. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. We can see the things, and we are bombarded all the time with news, with information, with images, and all of that. And we can become angry in what we see. But we need to be careful we don't lead us to sinning and acting out in sin. Be angry, but don't sin. He's quoting from the Psalms. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. We can be angry, and maybe we have good reason. And not only because of the things that we see going on around us, but perhaps the things that are happening to you personally. And I know that there have been those, and perhaps some in this service, as they come through the three services, that they've been hurt. You've been hurt. I've been betrayed. I've been taken advantage of. And it wasn't right. And it wasn't. And it shouldn't have happened. And it is important in those times that we go to the Lord. And we give it to the Lord. And ask for the strength of the Lord and the comfort of the Lord. But we don't react to where it leads to wrath and anger and being vengeful. As Paul was writing to the church of Colossae in chapter 3, he said, we're to put that off. Put off the anger and the wrath and the malice. And I know that that can be hard. I know that I've had to do that over years of ministry. Of those who have hurt me or come against me or the ministry. And I have to be careful. I don't take action of sinning because of my anger. And I'm going to be vengeful. The Lord says, vengeance is my saith the Lord. I think he says that because he's saying that don't you mess with it because you can't handle it. And being, I'm going to get back and I'm going to hurt them and I'm going to, you know, be full of wrath and everything else. I'm going to get even with them. Had you said something negative about me to others, so I'm going to do the same thing. I'm going to post it all over social media. Tell everybody how terrible you are. I'm going to gather a posse around me to gather a group of people to, you know, whatever it might be. I think you know what I'm saying. And I have seen that happen over and over again in the church, in families. And I don't want to dismiss the hurt or the harm that it causes. I'm not saying that we don't stand for righteousness. I'm not saying that, that, that we are to continue to be a doormat for people to walk on or take advantage of. There are times where relationships get severed and strained because, because you have to, to put boundaries in. But here's the thing. Don't let others determine how you react. You let the Lord determine how you react. And we learn from this godly man, Nehemiah. He's a true leader, and a true leader is not going to just do what is out of his emotions and just going to do what is popular in culture and in society today. 
Or the other side of the spectrum is this. I'm not going to get involved. I don't want to interfere. I don't want to bring correction. I don't want to bring rebuke. A godly leader is going to do what is right. And what is right before the Lord. And we learn from him as we look at this in verse 7. After serious thought, I rebuked the nobles and the rulers and said to them, Each of you is exacting usury or charging interest from his brother. So I called a great assembly against them. Will you underline that? Where he says, after serious thought, very wise thing to do. He was wise enough not just to act or uh, wait to act until... He had considered the manner carefully. That is, he went to the Lord. He sought the word of the Lord. He didn't just react out of his emotions or just in the moment. He didn't lose it. And if we don't learn to stop and consider the moment and the situation and give it to the Lord and ask him for help and ask for guidance and ask for wisdom, the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. And if we don't have self-control, then that problem, that situation will control you. As you lead in your home and within your family, listen, if you don't control yourself, you will never be successful in leading others. You will never be successful in leading others in a godly way. You won't be effective in leading others and in in ministering in a time when you really need to and have God's wisdom and working in your life in that way. But I'm going to be vengeful. I'm going to hurt them. I'm going to get even with them. I'm going to just spew out my wrath at them and my anger at them and continually trying to find a way to bring them down and do them in. Nehemiah considered the matter. Serious thought. He realized that the project that they were doing and building the wall around Jerusalem did not create the problem. Oftentimes, as God is building and as he's working, the problems are revealed. And now the Lord is time to make things right. So he's going to call for an assembly because the whole nation was being affected by this grievous sin. And he's going to call out those who are causing this to happen. In times when someone is sinning and causing harm and hurt or taking advantage of others, listen, I don't want to dismiss that. The hurt that maybe has come into your life. But we are to do what is right. And one of the other things that I often see in people is they want to ignore it. So many times we think, I'll I'll just ignore it, excuse it. I don't want to rock the boat. I don't like to be confrontational. That's the other side of the spectrum. We're called to correct. We're called to rebuke at times. But it is to be done in a way that is pleasing to the Lord in a godly way where we appeal to others. We learn how we are to do that in this chapter as, first of all, number one in verse seven, Nehemiah appeals here to the people, to the assembly is based on, number one, the word of God. Again, the law of Moses forbid the Jews to charge interest to their brethren. Brothers, he uses that word uh, four times in this chapter. Those of you who are charging interest, putting your brethren into slavery, he said you're exploiting those who are hurting. It's against God's word. And when we bring correction and when we bring rebuke to others, we appeal to others, we're to do according to the scriptures, according to the word of God. This is what God's word has to say. Turn away from your sin. Turn away from hurting others. Turn away from what you are doing. 
Because this is what God's word declares. And even appealing to others, I think about how good Paul was at doing that in his letters in the New Testament, those corrective letters to the Galatians and Corinthians and to Colossae. He would bring correction according to the word of God, but he appealed to them in a godly way as well. And when you read that personal letter to Philemon, as he had that runaway slave Onesimus that was with him, he said, Philemon, listen. I appeal to you out of love and sensitivity. Onesimus is now your brother in the Lord. Receive him. Onesimus, you need to do what is right, and you need to go back to Philemon and make things right. If he's taken from you, put it on my account. And Philemon, you need to receive him. He's now your brother, not just a slave. And he's a benefit to us, to me personally. And I read how wise Paul was in doing that. He wasn't, I'm the great Paul the Apostle, you know, with apostolic authority. I command you that you do this, Onesimus, and command you that you do this, Philemon. But out of just in a godly way and sensitivity and love and according to the heart of God that would please the situation. As we know the heart of God through the word of God, appealing to others. Abraham's herdsmen in Genesis 13 uh, were arguing and butting heads concerning where to graze their flocks. And Abraham appeals to Lot and says, hey, we're brothers. We've got plenty of room. Let's not quarrel. You choose where you're going to go, and I'll send my guys in the other direction. I have seen, listen, over 32 years of ministry, where there is quarreling in a family or in the body of Christ, where there is this digging in their heels and it's either my way or the highway and this is what I want and this is what I'm going to do and if I don't get my way and I'm going to dig my spiritual trench and throw my spiritual grenades at everybody rather than a desire for there to be restoring and bringing correction. Again, there are some situations where you stand for truth and you stand for righteousness and the situation doesn't get resolved or those relationships are fractured and severed. But if we're just doing it out of anger and, and tearing people down and wanting to get my way, that's what was happening in the church of Philippi. As you read that epistle, they had a very special relationship with Paul the Apostle. And Paul was writing that epistle to them because there was conflict. There was division that was going on in the church. And he says, let your conduct be worthy of the gospel. And look out not only for your own interests, but for the interests of others. In Romans chapter 12, verse 10, be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love and honor giving preference to one another. Those were verses that I read, especially almost four years ago when COVID broke out. There was a lot of division in the church at large and in churches, not so much here, amongst Christians, being very critical. And some of the things that were said and done was very insensitive and very hurtful to other brothers and sisters. The things that were posted, the things that were said to me, Being a Christian was based on not your faith in Jesus Christ, but whether you wore a mask or didn't wear a mask. Whether you're vaccinated or not vaccinated. Whether you came in person or you watched online. And pastor, you need to be the spiritual nanny for everybody. 
and tell them what to do. The things that were said were unbelievable. And then when you add the other things that were going on with the contentious election and all the unrest and everything else, I'm going to be just honest with you. I don't like it when a Christian, and particularly a Christian leader, is just bashing others and tearing them down and calling them names and they're stupid because they don't think like you do and have the same convictions and being nasty and harsh. I don't like it. Again, we can bring correction. We can bring rebuke. We stand for righteousness. We can let our convictions be known. We can dialogue. But just to do it, to be you know, contentious and argumentative and bashing people and tearing them down and name-calling, I don't like it. Because it's not displaying Christian character. And you've heard me say this before. The world's going to be the world and act like the world. But the church needs to act like the church. And Christians need to act like Christians. So how is it that he appeals? He does it, first of all, by the word of God. The next appeal Nehemiah makes, number two, is verse eight. And I said to them, according to our ability, we have redeemed our Jewish brethren who were sold to the nations. Now, indeed, you will even sell your brethren. Or should they be sold to us? Then they were silenced and found nothing to say. God had redeemed his people from Egypt and just recently from the Babylonian captivity. And you're going to put the people, your brethren, back into bondage and slavery for your own good? And it was actually tearing down what God and Nehemiah were trying to build up. And, and there was this motivation of greed rather than godliness. There was this motivation of power and prosperity rather than purity. Remember that we're called to do all things as unto the Lord. In our conduct, in our speech in our behavior, in our purity, in our everyday life. When it comes to what we say and how we treat others, we are to ask the Lord, is this pleasing as to you, unto you? Is this honoring you, Lord? Can you look at what I am doing and hear what I am saying and say, that's good? That's pleasing to the Lord. And being a good steward of all that God has given to us. Are we being a light to others? And are we doing it in a way that pleases the Lord? Because that leads to number three, the third appeal to Nehemiah in verse 9. Then I said, what you're doing is not good. He was honest. He said, it's not good. Should you not walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the nations, our enemies? We're to walk in the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, Proverbs tells us. The fear of the Lord is not this unhealthy terror of God that he's going to you know, judge me in every move that I make. We don't have the spirit of fear. We have the spirit of adoption. But the fear of the Lord, you don't hear much about it in the church today. But it is a heart that says, Lord, you are holy, and I reverence you, and I don't want it to do or live in a way that displeases you and grieves you and dishonors you. Because you have saved me, and you've forgiven me, and you're all-powerful and wonderful. And I want to regard you, and I want to 
look to you, to your wisdom and will in my life. Lord, I need you. Especially in those times that perhaps you need to forgive. You see, forgiving is something that the imperative of forgiveness is in the scriptures. I think it's one of the hardest things that God has called us to do when we've been hurt, when we've been cut deep. And forgiving doesn't mean that you just condone or overlook or, you know, continue to be a doormat. Again, setting boundaries, doing that which you need to to perhaps protect yourself, your family, whatever it may be. But forgiving is saying, listen, I'm going to choose to forgive so that that person in that situation doesn't have power over me and lead me to wrath and anger and just being bitter all the time. And Lord, you've forgiven me. And I want to walk in the fear of the Lord and regard you. Help me. And sometimes we have to do that day by day, bit by bit, over and over. But he will do that work in your heart. The fourth appeal here, this is important, was their witness to the other nations. They were to be a light to the other nations, not like the other nations. Remember in the beginning of 1 Samuel that at the end of the days of the judges, about 400 years, that the people come to Samuel and said, Samuel, we want a king because we want to be like the other nations. And Samuel was so grieved by that. And he went to the Lord and the Lord said, they haven't rejected you. They've rejected me. I wanted to be their king. That's why I called them Israel, governed by God. And the Lord wanted Israel to be a witness to the other nations to see the reality of the goodness and the provision of the Lord. So the question in the honesty of our hearts later today, this week, is this. What is my witness to others? Really? What is my witness to others at home, in the workplace, in the community, to others, when I'm with others? It might be in a light, and a light is seen. It might be in a light, again, standing for righteousness, standing for what is right, but it might be in a light in that, and pleasing the Lord in all that I do. And then as we close this morning, in verse 10, we read, I also, with my brethren and my servants, am lending them money and grain. Please let us stop this usury, this interest. Restore now to them, even this day, their lands, their vineyards, their olive groves, their houses, and also a hundred of the money and the grain and new wine and the oil that you have charged them. So they said, we will restore it and will require nothing from them. We'll, we will do as you say. Then I called the priests and required an oath from them that they should do according to this promise. Then I shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out each man from his house and from his property who does not perform this promise, even thus may be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said amen and praised the Lord, and then the people did according to this promise. Doing what is right in the sight of the Lord. Stop the usury. Restore their lands. Remember Zacchaeus in the book of Luke, in Luke's gospel, Jesus is going to Jerusalem. He passes by Jericho. He sees the chief tax collector 
Zacchaeus up in a tree, in a sycamore tree. He says, Zacchaeus, come down from there. I'm going to come over to your house. And Zacchaeus, the chief tax collector. So tax collectors back in gospel times, they were known for ripping people off, taking advantage of people. He was the chief tax collector. So he was ripping everybody off that was in that area. And he gets saved. And we see his actions show that as he restored four times to those who ripped off uh, in his life. It's an amazing account of how God changes a life and a heart. You see, we not only believe the gospel, we live the gospel. We don't live like the world. To take advantage of people and tear them down. To just be so harsh and negative. There's enough of that in the world. I pray it isn't that way with us in the church. And it grieves me when I see it does happen in the church. I see it when the church, like through the prosperity movement, has ripped off so many people and taken advantage of others in other ways as well, through false teaching and being overbearing. And we've had people that have given a testimony that just the bondage that they've been in because they were taken advantage of. And it is so sad when I see that. So here they were told, we're going to do what is right before the Lord. And that's what you and I are to do. And they repeated and took an oath and said amen and praised the Lord and did according to the promise. So may we do what is right according to the word of the Lord, according to the fear of the Lord, in the sight of the Lord. Amen? Amen. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you. There's so much in these few verses that we read, ten verses. But, Lord, it does, it, it convicts us and I know it does to everybody in different situations in different ways. So, Lord, we need you. We need your help because of all the things that come against us or hurt us or whatever. We can move forward in just anger and bitterness and wrath. It does bring anger. But take what the Word of God says. And do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on our wrath. But Lord, to give it to you and to put it off. Lord, help us in those times where we just, it's overwhelming. The burden. We need your comfort and your strength. We do speak the truth, but we speak the truth in love. We stand for what is right. We don't ignore those things, but Lord, that as we move forward, we do what is right in your sight, pleasing in your sight. And sometimes it is difficult decisions that we have to make as we stand for righteousness, but always desiring for you to work, be open to work. Lord, I just pray that as you're working in our lives, the enemy who uses these tactics to bring division in families and hurt within the brethren. Lord, that we would appeal. Appeal to you, your word. According to love and sensitivity and what is right, pleasing you. 
Let our conduct be worthy of the gospel. So Lord, help us in these things because it's not always easy and the hurt is real. Lord, I do pray that you just give us wisdom and that we would take the time today, tomorrow, this week to seek you and say, Lord, the things that I do and say, is it pleasing unto you or are you dealing with me? And that we can trust in giving that to you. So Lord, speak to us. And your conviction is to draw us to you, not to push us away from you. It's the enemy that condemns. I also want to pray if there's anyone who's here that you've never given your life to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. He's your salvation. There is none other. No one else, nothing else. Jesus went to a cross. The one who knew no sin allowed them to take him and beat him beyond recognition to pin him to that Roman cross as he hung on that hill of Calvary. And then he cried out, it is finished, making atonement for our sins and was put into a grave and rose again and he conquered sin and death. And now we have hope. We have reconciliation with the Father and forgiveness of sin as we come to you right now. If you've never done that, today is the day of salvation. Jesus died for you because of his love for you. He says, come. Recognize that you're a sinner in need of forgiveness to repent, to turn direction. And give your heart and yield your life to him. You can do that right now. I do. I confess with my mouth the Lord Jesus and I believe in my heart that God raised you from the dead, Lord. Forgive me of my sins. I believe you made atonement for me, a sinner. And you're alive, speaking to my heart, and I ask that you sit upon the throne of my heart in my life as Lord and Savior. My life is not his own. I belong to you now. And I thank you for this new beginning. Help me walk with you to know you all the days of my life. In Jesus' name. And for all of us, Lord, as we walk out of this place, being a light to others, being sensitive to your leading. In Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please stand? We are here to pray for you. If you need prayer, anybody made a decision for the Lord? Those of you listening online, we've gotten a few calls. Call us if you made a decision for the Lord. I'd love to pray with you and talk with you. If you need prayer here, come forward. We have a prayer team. We want to pray for you. And Luke's going to close us. We'll continue with Nehemiah next week. In the meantime, have a blessed week in the Lord.